The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tumball, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1, starting in verse 10, going through verse 17 is where we'll be today. And as, as you're turning there, uh, I really want you to consider, there'll be some announcements later on at, at the end of the service and in your bulletin, and you've seen them on the city, is our new semester of Get Trained classes will be rolling out soon. And these classes, they're, they're not just a Sunday school type thing, and they're just not for uh, to learn a couple things and move on. They really are geared to help you grow in Christ's likeness, to, to grow in your own personal maturity, to grow in ministry, and how to minister to one another, and then also how to grow in mission. So the classes we have uh, this spring semester are really for that purpose, that how to really live a gospel-centered life. Um, the Women's Discipleship Program is kicking back up again. Uh, apologetics, how, how to defend your faith winsomely and how to speak about the truth that we know to be in God's word. And we're also offering financial peace this year, how to steward our money and be discipled by Christ with our money that he's given us. I mean, it is significant that when Jesus says in the gospels, you cannot serve God and money. He, he picked the God, Yahweh, Father, Trinity, him, spirit, you cannot pick that, and money. So money is one of the biggest idols, probably the next biggest idol to our very selves in, in the world. And also, uh, we've done these Get Trained seminars before. On February 16th, I will be doing another seminar on Monday night here in, in the building uh, on personal evangelism. We've talked to a lot of people, and we know I, I'm preaching a lot, especially if you're here through our Acts series, about how we need to be evangelistic, how to be engaging the world. And spoke to a lot of people in, in the groups, and they said, I, I, it'd be really helpful if I could get some practical encouragement, um, some tips, some, some, some scriptures, what, what should I memorize? And so we want to gather just one Monday evening, it'll be about an hour and a half, and we're just going to hit the ground running on our calling to personal evangelism and how the Holy Spirit really empowers us to do that in the very simple, practical things we can do to engage the culture, all right? And all this is because, as we're going to see throughout First Corinthians, is that the cross has called us to everything, this is what this letter is really all about, the cross and the Christian life, how everything we do relates to Christ and him crucified, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so today, as we move past the introduction, as we saw last week in verses 1 to 9, as Paul introduces these, all these themes, today we're looking at his very first appeal, and it is how the cross brings about Christian unity. The cross and Christian unity. Look at verse 10. And the Holy Spirit says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ 
be emptied of its power. Let's pray. Lord, now, would you send the Spirit as we look at this God-breathed Word? Would you bring about great change in us as we look to the cross and as we look at Christian unity? Would the power of the cross, would it vaporize all of our pettiness, any divisions, any quarrels? And would we all be united in the name of Jesus Christ? And it's in that name that we pray. Amen. You really don't have to be an art aficionado to know the names Picasso or Van Gogh or Rembrandt or any, any... great name, painter name, you, you know it. Original pieces of these men go for millions of dollars, an, an un, uncalculable amount of money. Some of their original artworks, I mean, the, not like an original print, there's these like original prints, an original, like, an original copy, <laughs> and then there's like the original, original. And in 1975, one of Rembrandt's, not the toothpaste or you know, the bonding stuff for teeth, I think. One of Rembrandt's most famous paintings, The Night Watch, worth millions of dollars, was vandalized in Amsterdam. A man named William de Regic ran at Rembrandt's painting as a sat in the museum. He ran at it in the sight of everybody, and he took out a knife on his way. And as he got to this million-dollar, incredible painting by Rembrandt, that Rembrandt touched himself, brush-stroked himself, he began to slash all across the, the painting. Why? That's the one thing. You're like, why? What would cause a man to do such a thing? It's just a painting. His reason, he said why he had to do this? He said, Jesus made me do it. Now, that doesn't hold up in court. Jesus told me to slash the Rembrandt painting. The man was obviously sent to a psychiatric hospital. The painting was restored, but there there are still traces of the cuts. They, They still remain. What was a beautiful, spotless piece of art was torn and ripped by a madman, and he claims Jesus made me do it. And you know what? When Christians divide, when they bicker and fight and and quarrel and split and tear apart the beautiful art that is the local church of Jesus Christ. And yet people always say, well, I'm doing it for Jesus. When church splits happen, when these things have happened all across the world, there's usually one party of people that say, well, we're doing it because we're just trying to be faithful to Jesus. And this is exactly what Paul's saying in verse 10. And when he says, look at verse 10, he says, I hear that there are divisions. That's a very safe word in English. In Greek, it is, I hear that there are tears among you, that there are rips, that there, is thing, there are schisms that have happened between you, or now there are deep rips and tears among the church at Corinth. So right out of the gate, the very first thing that Paul wants to address in the issues facing Corinth after his introduction in verses 1 to 9, which is very gentle, and he now moves into, I need to address that you are disunified. And and right now in churches all across the world, there are churches gathering that have tremors underneath the surface of deep tissue tears. 
And it's only a matter of time until the volcano erupts. It's already erupted in Corinth. So this isn't just, you know, okay, I guess there's a little bit of disagreement going. No, there is an eruption of disagreement and schism happening at the church at Corinth. And look at, how does Paul hear about it? He hears about it from a third party. Look at verse 11. How has it been reported to him? It has been reported to me by Chloe's people. So not even Chloe, but Chloe's people. Now, who is Chloe? A lot of people think that Chloe, uh, Paul is writing this letter while he is in Ephesus. So Chloe was probably, um, they think she was a successful businesswoman. And now she has her traveling associates going from Corinth to Ephesus, selling goods. And so maybe she's a Christian. I would assume that she's a believer and that her people are also believers. And maybe they checked in on the church at Corinth, went to go pop in on a Sunday while they were there. And they are going, whoa, this place is crazy. It'd be like, you know, you have friends coming in from out of town, from L.A., and they pop into Redeemer, and they're going, what is wrong with these people? This is nothing like Ephesus. This is what's happening. And so Paul, while he's in Ephesus, he hears reports from Chloe's people that there is a giant, widespread quarreling. And right now, by God's grace, our church isn't experiencing widespread quarreling. And we have nearly in the past. And if there is widespread quarreling, I surely don't know about it. But my guess is that there are still, even today, that there are teeny tiny pockets of people who have something to nitpick and mumble about. There's always those kinds of people. Those people will always be until the Lord Jesus descends on his white horse. And every church has them. But this isn't what's happening in Corinth. The church of Corinth is experiencing massive disunity, whole church, wholesale, party lines are drawn. It's almost kind of like in Corinth when you go to a wedding and the usher says, oh, what, what side? Groom side? Bride side? And Corinth, what, you Paul? Paulus? Cephas? Christ? Which we're going to talk about, like, why is that weird? You know, you read and go, oh, some, I'm Paul, okay, that's bad, I'm Paul, bad, I'm Cephas, Peter, that's bad, I'm of Christ. Why is that bad? We're going to talk about that. As far as I know, we're not experiencing that yet, but it's very possible for any church to get there. So what does Paul do? What should we do? I think they're also fighting over who baptized them, because that's why he brings it up in verse 14. Look at what he says. I thank God that I baptized none of you. What a statement to hear. I am so glad that I only baptized a handful of you people. Because I think they're fighting about, no, I was baptized by Paul. Oh, yeah, Apollos is a way better preacher than Paul, which Paul will say so. He is a much more eloquent speaker than I. I was baptized by Apollos. And Cephas, must have, Peter, he must have rolled into town. And people are thinking, well, I was baptized by Peter, the head of the apostles, the guy that preached at Pentecost. 3,000 people got saved at his sermon. What about Paul's? Paul gets stoned when he preaches. You know, so you can see how it would be very easy to have this kind of quarrel going back and forth. As far as I know, at Redeemer, there is no fight going on over who baptized who. So how does this apply to us? The principles and truth that Paul lays out here fits for every quarrel and every division that could potentially happen among Christians and in local churches. So let's see how he starts out. First is the appeal, okay? The appeal for Christian unity. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers. That's a subtle reminder of who we are. Brothers and sisters, not just strangers, not just associates, not just colleagues, but brothers and sisters. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree 
So how does Paul appeal to them? Not with apostolic swagger. Listen, church, I'm an apostle, so get your act together. That's not how he addresses them. And this word appeal in Greek, it's a much kinder word than charge. You see those words in just I charge you, I demand. Those do happen, and those are very militaristic. Very, you got it, shape up now. But that's not where Paul starts. He starts with a very kind and an encouragement, an exhortation, a, a plea. He's saying, I'm, I'm pleading with you. I'm appealing to you kindly. And where does the gravity of Paul's appeal come from? Not from, as I said, apostolic swagger. Not in tone. Look at what he says. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a heavy line. I want to talk to you about your behavior by, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He appeals to them by the name, which always means the, the person, who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done. He's, he's calling to them, I want you to consider the gospel when I'm about to address what is happening among you. He's calling them to live in line with the gospel of Christ. This quarreling, this division, this is not in line with the gospel. This is an unnecessary dividing. This is not accordance with the unity that is found in Christ. So I'm appealing to you by the Lord Jesus, whom we all love and whom we all follow, to agree, to be united. So what, the first thing we're learning from this is here's the deal, that Jesus is not contained to a singular moment in our lives. He has full range to call shots over all of life calling all of our behaviors to conform to the gospel in response to his grace. What I love about what's happening in verse 10 is that any call to Christian behavior should never, ever be divorced from what Christians believe. And more specifically, what we behold. Even more specifically, who we worship. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Any appeal, any correction, any counsel we give to one another can never be separated to remain Christian, to be separated from Christ himself. So when Christians are out of line, we appeal to each other in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not some kind of phrase just like open sesame and then we just say stuff. We appeal to each other in the name of Jesus because we're reminding ourselves of reality. Look at what he says. I want to appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord. He didn't have to say that. He could have said, by Jesus Christ. But he's tailoring his words very specifically to remind them about Jesus, that he's our Lord. And the church of Corinth is acting like they don't really have a Lord. And when we are being rebuked and we need to be called out on our sin, it's because we are acting like we don't have a Lord. They're just doing their thing, but they are a part of the kingdom of Christ. And so we too, we are a part of the kingdom of Christ. We appeal to each other in his name. This happens often. When a, when a spouse is sinning against their spouse, we appeal in the name of the Lord Jesus. The Lord that you claim to love and follow, this, you, you must follow him. When a spouse is pursuing an unbiblical divorce, we appeal, I want to appeal to you in the name of Jesus, who you say that you love and who you follow, that you, you will not do this. To the Christian, there is no greater appeal than the name of Jesus. This is the greatest motivation to obedience in the universe, the name of the Lord Jesus. 
The law doesn't motivate to obedience. But the love of Jesus does. So we appeal, we exhort one another in the name of Christ. And we must be careful with how we handle this. It's like a, it's like a barber or a stylist. Some of you, that's no concern. Like Pastor Barry, no concern for him. In the right hands, this appeal in the name of the Lord Jesus can either be very helpful or really, really hurtful. It can be tragic. In one person's hands, you can get a beautiful haircut. In one person's hands, you can have the most horrific, deranged-looking haircut ever. It's happened to me. Um, it's at sports clips trying to get a haircut. And I asked the girl cutting my hair, I was like, oh, you must really love sports to work at sports clips. It's just TVs and sports everywhere. She goes, oh, no, not really. I was like, oh, man, you must love cutting hair then. Nope, not really. Yeah, worst haircut ever. <laughs> How you wield this phrase is, this is why a lot of people in the Bible about hate the local church. Because they have been bullied in the name of Jesus. And that's wrong. How, things, how dare you question your pastor? He's the Lord's anointed. Jesus is disappointed in you. That's ridiculous. It's satanic. You should be on a diet like the Old Testament Israelites. That's what Jesus ate. It's clear that Jesus wants everyone to homeschool. These are unbiblical and moronic statements that have bullied people into corners in the name of the Lord Jesus. So when we say, as people under the Lordship of Christ, when we say to one another, I appeal to you in the name of the Lord Jesus, you better make sure it lines up with the teachings of Jesus. You better make sure that it squares up with Genesis to Revelation, that it lines up with something in his word. And if you cannot think of anything in the Bible where you can say, I appeal to you in the name of the Lord Jesus because of XYZ verse, you have nothing, you can't think of it, then you, you zip it. You, you have no appeal. You have nothing. It's just preference, it's just opinion, and all those things get absorbed into the cross and become insignificant because we are to consider others more significant than ourselves. We are to look to others' interests, not only our own. So that's a strong thing to say. If you don't have a verse to say, I appeal in the name of Lord Jesus, then drop it. Well, does Paul do that? When Paul says, I appeal to you to all agree, does Jesus say anything like that? Yes. In John 17, Jesus prays that we would all be one as he is one with the Father. Jesus teaches in the Gospels that if you're gathering for worship at the temple, he's speaking the first century Israelites, and you know that your brother has something against you, that there is a division, that there is a tear, he says you drop your sacrifice and you go and deal with your brother. So you put your communion cup down and you go deal with your brother. You put your smidge of bread down and you deal with your brother. You stop singing and you deal with your brother or sister. All grounds for appeal to one another always are located in Christ. And Paul appeals that they would agree. Look at what the words he uses in verse 10. That you would agree. There'd be no divisions and that you would all be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now here's what he doesn't mean. This is not a call to uniformity. That you would all dress the same, that you would all talk the same, that you would all look the same, that you would think the same about everything. That's not what Paul is appealing for. And you see that in some churches. 
They all kind of look like they're of the same family. And they all kind of dress the same and talk the same. And it's very weird. Um, it's very cult-like. That, that's not what he's calling for. As a Christian, you are free to think and have opinions about all kinds of things. This is not a call to you. you. You are free to think whether or not Des Bryant caught that ball or not. As followers of the Lord Jesus, you, we aren't required to all agree that medium rare is the only way to eat steak. Only elders are required to believe that. <laughs> so when Christians are experiencing a relational fisticuffs, I mean, really over non-essential, non-central, non-saving like, doctrine, a humbling and relenting in unity must be sought. Like in end times, or spiritual gifts, or whether or not it's okay for Christians to have a manageable amount of debt, like for a house or a car. What Paul means specifically on this issue is one that the Corinthians are quarreling over, that they need to come to agreement. This issue that I'm addressing, you need to come to agreement. So look at verse 11. For, so this is why he says, you need to be of the same judgment. For, this issue has been reported to me. That there's quarreling among my brothers. And I love verse 12. What I mean is, oh, if Paul would only do that more. <laughs> what I mean is this exact issue. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. I follow Paulus. All right, all right, I follow Cephas. They're having this communal brawl over which teachers are best. Who baptized who? They're getting up in arms about silly things. This is, a, this is much a quarrel about nothing. As Paul's going to say later, we are just Christ's servants. We are nothing. We're just clay pots. You are basically arguing over which muddy pot is the best. Some are saying, I'm of Paul, literally. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Paul person. I'm an Apollos guy. Now, who are these people? Okay, we know Paul's the one who planted the church at Corinth. He leaves, and then Apollos comes in, and he's a wonderful teacher of God's word. Even the Bible says Apollos is a stellar preacher. And then Peter must have rolled in, and we know that he traveled some, him and his wife, and they would travel, and, and he would preach, and they would minister to the churches. So you can see how someone, oh, I was baptized by Peter. And then someone later, oh, one of the early Christians in Corinth, oh, I just got baptized by Paul. And I love how even in God's word, that you sense this amount of wonderful, beautiful, unlike non-fake, wonderful inspiration of God's word. As Paul's writing, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except this guy and this guy. A verse goes by, and then, oh yeah, I did baptize this guy. But other than that, I can't, I can't recall anything else. If the Bible were fake, they would totally edit that. But that's true. So you can see when someone says, well, I was baptized by Paul, I was baptized by Peter, and Peter autographed my Isaiah scroll, you know, I mean, you, you, you see how divisions happen real quick. This negative tribalism. And we can't pretend that this doesn't happen today. Someone can say, well, I'm a John MacArthur guy. And if you're familiar with John MacArthur, then you know that means you believe certain things about certain doctrines. And then someone else could say, oh, I don't really like MacArthur. I'm more of a Piper guy. And what a ridiculous, I'm, I don't like, he's a servant of Christ. What do you mean? We're not allowed to say I don't like that person. 
I'm a, I'm a Chandler guy, Spurgeon or Francis Chan. Or we can pit Christ's servants against each other like they're the fourth members of the Trinity. And we, are, we love to boast in men, in these kinds of men, because in doing so, we kind of get to boast in ourselves. Because as we lift them up, we go, oh, this guy, this guy's better than that guy, and I'm better than you because I follow that guy. You're obviously not as smart, but I'm smart enough to be the one that listens to X, Y, Z preacher. As though one preacher or one denomination or one church has the corner on Christ. And that's exactly what Paul says in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Did, did some of you manage to get a corner on the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is Jesus on your side and not theirs? That's why it drives me crazy when athletes who, who claim to follow Christ will say, oh man, I prayed and the Lord was just with us. What about the Christians on the other team? Is he not with them? And you see, like, we have to be careful in how we speak and how we speak about matters of life and especially of life in the local church. And we can get engaged in a theological one-upmanship. You know, I was reading the other day and, and um, Spurgeon was saying that, uh, Oh, yeah, I was reading, and Augustine said, you see how we, this happens really quickly. And what was happening in Corinth is they were enamored with learning truth and not living it. And that is the peril of the Bible Belt. Enamored with learning and learning, but not excited about living it. They're forgetting whose disciples they really are. I'm way grateful for guys like John Piper and Matt Chandler and other, but I'm not a disciple of John Piper or Charles Spurgeon or Ray Ortland. We are disciples of the Lord Jesus. So now I hope you're thinking, okay, I get, it's wrong to say, I'm, I'm a Paul guy, I'm an Apollos guy, and that'd be, that be a point of division. It's totally fine to say, man, I really, I really love the writings of this guy. That's, that's totally fine. But it's not to be used as a weapon. So why is it wrong for this group of people at the end of verse 12 to say, I follow Christ? How in the world is that bad? How can saying, I follow Christ, be rebukable by an apostle? At first, this is totally a head-scratcher. But it's not hard to fathom. You have a group of people in Corinth who are lobbying for their human teachers, Paul, Apollos, Cephas. And then you have, over here, you have the hyper-spiritual group. Paul, please. Apollos, give me a break. He's all fireworks. He's all pyrotechnics. He's, he, he doesn't, he's not deep. Peter, big mouth Peter, no thanks. I follow Christ. I don't care what any human teacher says. I just follow Jesus. It's just me and Jesus. And with any human preacher, any writer, any theologian, any seminarian, I don't care what they have to say because me and Jesus is all we need. These are the original red letter Christians. And it's a dishonor to Christ. We think, these people think, I am honoring Christ when I dishonor Christ's servants. But it is a dishonor to Christ to dismiss Christ's servants. Because in Ephesians 4, the Bible says that he has given us apostles and prophets and pastor teachers to build up the saints for the work of the living God. They are the original, Jesus is all I need. 
I don't really need the church. I experienced Jesus on my own. These are the kind of people that don't serve others. They won't allow others to serve them. These are the kinds of people that neglect that we are all the priesthood of believers, that we are all filled with the spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit of Christ. These are also the kinds of people who don't care about what happens in politics because they care about Jesus. And so these things are at odds with loving God and loving your neighbor. There was a phrase that Spurgeon said once that I totally disagreed with because I'm of Christ, right? That kind of thing. Where he said, there are some people who are so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. And I thought, what is, how could you be too heavenly minded? That doesn't make sense. Here's where it is. There is a sense where a mishandled Christ-centeredness is actually wrong. And it's not really Christ-centeredness. These are the kinds of people that don't care about pro-life causes because they just want to focus on spiritual things. As those Jesus didn't say, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. Friends, the church in the 21st century is at danger for more divisions and tears than the first century. There's already so much schism and separation among churches in America by race, by, by music, by denomination, and the way forward will be to let all those things be forgotten in the background and recapture the centrality of the cross. Why is this quarreling occurring in Corinth? Why? Why is there such a tear in the church? It's yes, that they're lifting up these human teachers, but why are they doing that? Simply and devastatingly, they have forgotten the wonderful cross. What was once central to them, of first importance, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul says we must go back to the cross. Look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? And here it is. Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He says, look, don't you remember who was actually crucified for you? You're, you're mishandling the cross. You're forgetting the reality of crucifixion. That's why you're quarreling. That's why you're fighting. And so that phrase, was Paul crucified for you? Imagine you hear that in Corinth as this, read, this letter is being read out loud. Is Paul crucified? Is Jeff crucified for you? What, what did you think when you heard it today? You hear it and you go, no. Obviously, no. But our decentering of Christ isn't always as obvious. It's obvious that Paul or Piper or our favorite theology or our, our own party, whatever it may, political party, whatever it may be, those things were not crucified for us, but when we get way too passionate and ready to divide over non-divisive things, we are revealing that we think this was crucified for us, that this is my Lord and Savior, that this is my God. Of course Paul wasn't crucified for them, but they're sure acting like it. You can put anything else. Was, was Apollos crucified for you? Was Cephas? And then the right, was Christ Yes, both their Lord and ours. Of course your political party's ideals weren't crucified for you, but some Christians sure act like it. Was Ronald Reagan crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Reformed theology? Jesus alone gets our supreme allegiance, uniting all things together. We may disagree with people politically, 
But the cross that is from the kingdom of God transcends all of that, showing us what unites. If we are in Christ, we have more unity with a church planner in Cuba than you do for your non-believing republicrat. And notice, it's, it's not just bad things that lobby for the center. Because the moment the cross becomes small in our estimation, everything else gets bigger. The moment the cross loses focus, and the moment the cross doesn't seem as large and massive, and now it's getting smaller and smaller to us, other issues get bigger and bigger and bigger, all clamoring and jockeying for the center. Bad things and in our flesh, good things. Good things will fight for the center when our flesh is involved. And we cannot forget who was crucified for us who died in our place for our sins and rose again gloriously from the dead, the saying, it is finished. So it all comes to Christ. All of our allegiance comes to Christ to deliver us from the wrath of God and to give us eternal life just by believing in him. The Corinthians have lost sight that they are quarreling and dividing and being nasty towards the very people that Jesus died for, loves, leads, and intercedes for. The cross where that blood flowed mingled down is the unifying center for all believers. The cross is where forgiven people dwell together, not to fight, but to be free. The wondrous cross becomes a refuge for all believers, a reinforced foundation for all of life and godliness. And Christian unity isn't just offering up apologies and then moseying along. It's undoing our mishandling of the cross. Remembering Christ, remembering our unity in the crucified and risen Christ, which supersedes all preferences and which supersedes all opinions. So what have you put on the cross in place of Christ? What have you put on the cross that as soon as another born again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit of the living God, Christian disagrees with you, they fall out of grace with you? I know there's people all all across our church that have different views on vaccinations. Some, I I don't don't like it because of X, Y, Z. Some, I do like it, X, Y, Z. They're, okay, fine. There's no reason why Christians should divide over that, ever. Ever. And you can fill in the blank with any kind of issue. Homeschool, way to manage the home, different ways of parenting, as long as they're not contradicting verses in the Bible. What have you put on the cross that as soon as another born-again Christian disagrees with you, you write them off? We don't just toss our opinions to the side. and we, What we do is we see that our pride has been nailed to the cross. It's been crucified with Christ. And now we see as sanctified, risen with him in humility as new creations. So who really was crucified for you? Was Jesus crucified for you? If so, it changes the way you view everything. Changes the way you send an email. It changes the way you drive. It changes the way you interact. And maybe you need to repent and believe today that Jesus really is who he is. That Jesus really did die for sinners and arise again from the dead. And Christian, does believing the bloody death and awesome resurrection of Jesus form how you treat other Christians? Does it change how you treat your fellow brothers and sisters? Does it change the way you treat unbelievers who are in need of Jesus? 
when the cross gets decentered, our lives get out of whack and we'll quarrel, we'll divide, and we'll nitpick each other to death. And, but when we remember that Christ was crucified for us, that we are a constituted whole in Christ, quarrel cease, and we see that we are his workmanship, that we are the brushstrokes of his blood, and that we are a beautiful piece of our work standing as the living local church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go to the Lord's Supper now, unified as one in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you now, we want to offer up any sins that we need to confess. Maybe a misplaced affection, and overzealousness for things that are not necessarily of your kingdom. So Lord, would you protect us now from a quickness to disagree over things that do not warrant disagreement? for things that do not warrant division, for things that do not warrant tears. Jesus, you were crucified for us and you are risen for us. As our great God and Savior, would you help us to maintain and keep vigilantly the perspective of the cross Now we're one in you, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. And it's in your awesome name that we pray, amen.